0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 110. If you don't have your Bible, there's some underneath the chairs in front of you, and I know some of you are in the habit of finding it on your phone. That's fine, too. Just Psalm 110. And then also, there are some uh, notes in your worship folder, as usual. So I trust you all are having a a good, long uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and and, uh, this is a great way to start the final day of that weekend together in the word. You know, if you like looking at different Bible translations, uh, you might recognize the name J.B. Phillips. Uh, He wrote an early modern translation of the New Testament, actually in the late 1950s. Uh, I've enjoyed reading that a lot and also enjoyed some of his Uh, In particular, one of his other books was one of the first books I read when I was a freshman at Wheaton College called Your God is Too Small. Sometimes even Christians can have wrong views of God. Um, I know for sure those who aren't following Christ will have wrong views of God. I'll ask some people sometimes uh, who say they don't believe in God and I'll say, tell me about the God you believe in. And I'll say to them, that's not the God I believe in either because that's not at all the God of the Bible. Um, So there are a lot of inadequate views of God that are out there that we can often have, even as Christians. So I I thought it would be helpful to read just the titles of the chapter, uh, the chapters of of J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small. And maybe um, these are ones that you've thought of God-like or you're tempted to or you know people that do. But here are the chapter titles from his book, Your God is Too Small. Um, The Resident Policeman, uh, The Parental Hangover, The Grand Old Man, Meek and Mild, Absolute Perfection, The Heavenly Bosom, God in a Box, the managing director, second hand God, perennial grievance grievance, the pale Galilean, and the projected image. So how many of those chapter titles do you think actually become have, have become deeply held beliefs today? Maybe by people you know. We tend to act and live our lives in the way we think of God, who God is. And if we have an inadequate view of God, that's the way we're going to live our lives. So what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? It's important to think of God the way the Bible describes him, and Psalm 110 corrects some of the wrong views that we can have of God. Uh, This is a royal psalm about kingship that Jesus and Peter uh, both, say, David wrote. And this is on your outline. He wrote it about the Messiah. So that is the subject of Psalm 110. It is the Messiah. David definitely wasn't writing about any of his own descendants because no Jewish king was ever a priest and was definitely not a priest forever, which is described in this psalm. And also, no Jewish king ever conquered all the rulers of the whole earth, as it talks about in verse 6. So this psalm gives us two pictures of God the Son, the Messiah. Two pictures from the past. His exaltation as king, and also his consecration as priest. And then there's a third picture from the future. We see Christ's victory as the conqueror over God's enemies. He's a king, and he's a priest, and finally he is a conqueror who will judge the nations and the rulers of the earth. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 110 to us. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There he is as king. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, so he will lift his head high. This is God's word to us today. And as we've been doing all along with all the Psalms, this is the 14th uh, Psalm that we've done. We're going to unpack this Psalm together. So, the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is that Jesus is exalted as king. You know, there are so many movies that, in one way or another, reflect the great story that we have in the Bible of Jesus and the gospel. Um, I'm I'm, I'm guessing, in fact, I'd love to see a show of hands. How many of you have seen the movie The Lion King? Yeah, I think most of us have. Um, I I, I think that you uh, know that it tells the story of a king's rise to power. So from the moment the movie begins, Simba is branded as the heir to the throne. And he's designated to that office at the start of the movie by the baboon Rafiki, who lifts up Simba before the animals of the kingdom as as they bow down before him. He is the future king. And the rest of the story describes Simba's exile and then homecoming to Pride Rock. And when Simba returns there, he has to battle for the throne against his evil uncle, Scar, who has stole um, his kingship or tried to. So Simba conquers Scar, uh, but even though he's been appointed as the future king and even conquered the forces of darkness, his work isn't done. So at the end of the movie, immediately after the big battle, there's an important scene that's sometimes overlooked. And it's of Rafiki who brings the story full circle and he takes his staff and he points Simba. To Pride Rock. He said, that's where you need to go to ascend to your throne. So an old era is ended and a new one is about to begin. But in order for Simba to claim his kingdom and be installed as king, he has to ascend Pride Rock, the rightful place of the ruler. And he's got to demonstrate that he's the conqueror. And so Simba dramatically, the music is all dramatic, ascends to Pride Rock and and he roars. And uh, as he does that, all the lions acknowledge his victory and his dominion and, and his authority. He's the new king. But even though Simba has been designated as the king from the start of the movie, and even though he's conquered his evil Uncle Scar in battle, he's still not installed as king until he ascends Pride Rock. And in a much better way, that's just a, a very finite and small and, and flawed picture of the better way of Jesus who has been designated the king and the Lord from the beginning of the gospels, really from the beginning of time. And Jesus had to be installed in ki- as king though. He had to be enthroned. He had to be recognized as king. He had to ascend to the right hand of the father and sit on the throne and receive from God the Father all dominion and authority, which has been given to the Son. And so Jesus' ascension is about the triumph of the King. And that's the subject of this psalm. The psalm begins in verse 1 and says, The Lord says to my Lord. So follow along with me here. This is important. In Hebrew, it says, Yahweh says to Adonai, or Jehovah says to Adonai. Uh, Jehovah is the God of Israel. Adonai is one greater than the one who's writing or speaking. And so greater than David himself, because we know David is the author of the psalm. David is pointing ultimately to the the Messiah. So near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and, and not long before his arrest and crucifixion, there was a time when the religious leaders <clears throat> were trying to entrap Jesus with some trick questions. But Jesus turns the table on them. And by asking a question that was beyond their ability to answer. And he says this in Matthew 22, Jesus asks, "What do you think about the Christ, whose son is he?" And Uh, well, they think that they've got this one down, and so they thought the answer was easy, and so they say the son of David. And Jesus continues, so this is from Matthew 22. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, speaking of Psalm 110, calls him Lord? For he says, and then now he quotes the Psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So that's Jesus' response to the religious leaders. So what seemed to be an easy question all of a sudden becomes a very profound question. And here's why. Because if David called his natural physical descendant, the Messiah, his Lord, it could only be because the one who was to come would somehow be greater than David. And the only way that could happen is if the Messiah were not, was not just a mere man. He would be the divine Messiah. In other words, he would be God. And so we, the New Testament is clear that Jesus Christ is God the Son. But we have it here in Psalm 110 as well. And so the answer, and this is on your outline, the answer to the question, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he, must be he is both the son of David and the son of God. And this is the exact teaching the apostle Paul gave us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, as, speaking about Jesus, as to his human nature, he's a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the throne. And if the Pharisees had honestly faced the truth of who Jesus Christ was, they would have had to confess Jesus Christ as being God, come in the flesh. But they refused to do so. When Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, again, he's quoting Psalm 110. And also by his teaching, by Jesus' teaching and quoting Psalm 110, he's teaching the apostles how to interpret scripture, and in particular, how to interpret Psalm 110, which they picked up on enthusiastically. They loved to quote this psalm. In fact, they refer to this psalm, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And verse 1 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. And so on the very first day of the history of the Christian church, what we, what we refer to as Pentecost, Peter preaches from Psalm 110. He preaches from this psalm. Um, and you've got this on your outline as well. Because of the clear references to the Messiah... This psalm is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other psalm, 27 times. And 10 of those are in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we could argue that Hebrews is really built on this psalm. Um, It's basically uh, the entire uh, book of Hebrews is really this psalm just expanded on. So again, on your outline, when Jesus was exalted at his ascension, the father made three promises to him that we see in this psalm. And the first one is that he would defeat his enemies. That's number one, the first promise in the last part of verse one. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, David declares that God told the Messiah to sit at God's right hand. And God's right hand was recognized by the Jews as being a place where uh, where someone was co-equal. And and where they were given authority. And and to sit means it's a finished task. Uh, To sit at his right hand is a great honor. And so the father honors the son by placing him at his own right hand. And this is an important thing to understand because it's mentioned 11 times in the New Testament that Jesus is at God's right hand. And you know what Jesus is doing at God's right hand? Well, the New Testament tells us, Romans 8, 34, Paul, the apostle says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you, for us. So you need to understand that, that whatever you are going through in your life right now, Jesus is interceding for you. When you feel the attack of Satan, he is interceding on your behalf for victory. And when you feel like the powers that you're up against are too strong for you to conquer, again, he is is praying for you. And through Jesus, we know that God has removed our sin and our guilt when we trust in him and we, we place our confidence in him. When Satan accuses us, we have an advocate to defeat the powers that are too strong for us to defeat. And so the earthly priest's work was never done. That's why they always had to stand. So Hebrews chapter 10 says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which ultimately can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Why? Because his work is finished at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Again, in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 110. Jesus died in our place once and for all. It's a completed work. And so he sat down at the right hand of his father. And so the system of sacrifices that they had could never remove our sin completely. But Jesus' sacrifice cleansed us from sin once and for all. And when we believe in Christ, he makes us completely right with God. And and belief is not just intellectual belief. It's, It's relying on and trusting in and clinging to. That's what the idea of belief means in Scripture, and so it's like the, the famous tightrope walker, Blondin, Charles Blondin, who came from France and was hired by the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And he comes and, and, and he, he does all these crazy things across the tightrope. He strung a tightrope over Niagara Falls between the United States and Canada. It wasn't the Walindas that did it first. It was Charles Blondin, and he would walk across blindfold, and he would walk across pushing a wheelbarrow. He would walk across and doing, acting like he was going to fall, but he would always say that was just an act, and he'd make it back in half the time. Well, he walked up to a group of people one time, and he said, how many of you believe that I can uh, walk across with somebody on my back? And they all cheered. Yeah, we believe we've seen you do the craziest things. Why not? We, can, we believe you can do it. And he said, who would like to volunteer? <laughs> Crickets. Nobody volunteered. Finally, actually, his manager volunteered and went across with him on his back. Uh, you can look it up online and see a picture of that, actually, from the early 1900s. Uh, but the point is, is that belief isn't just intellectual belief and believing it here. It's believing it so that you get on someone's back. If I would have been his manager, I would have given a new definition to the word cling to. I would have been clinging to Blondin with all my life. But that's what belief is when we talk about it in the Bible. It's believing. It's trusting in and relying on and clinging to. He's pleased with us. He's pleased with that we can obey him and we can serve him, that we have a, a loving relationship with God. But our service does not save us. And then David writes, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The metaphor of using the enemy's soldiers as footstools meant that they were going to be Defeated as described in verses five through seven. We'll get there. But Jesus is the place of authority. Paul said this in Philippians 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That's a defeat of the enemies. Every knee will bow to Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Psalm 110 meant a great deal to Martin Luther, the reformer in all the battles that he was fighting with the the Roman Catholic Church. And at one point when he first read Psalm 110, he was sick. But realizing it, he said, man, if I get better, I'm gonna write a commentary on this Psalm. And he did get better, and he wrote a 120-page commentary on Psalm 110. Well, the second promise of what the Father will do for the Son, is in verse two, and that's number two on your outline, that he would extend, or the second point under that, number one, that he would extend his kingdom. He would extend his kingdom. In other words, his power will spread. Look at verse two. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So in the Old Testament, David's enemies, and uh, later the enemies of his successors, were nations like Assyria and Babylon and and others. But these were just representative of a universally rebellious human race. Uh, You know, when my kids were growing up, I learned uh, a phrase that they would all say to each other, you are not the boss of me. (laughs) And I think that kind of is like all of us. You know, we want to say that to everyone. We want to be our own boss. We want to be in control. We don't want anybody, even the Lord, telling us what to do. We want to be in control of our jobs. We want to be in control of our relationships and of our careers and of our money and our investments and our rights. This is is why our nature needs to be redeemed, because we want to be in control of all of our choices. We want to do the things that we want to do when we want to do them. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves are, are you allowing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life in every area of your life? Sometimes we give him control, but then we take those things back. Sometimes we give him control, but we're holding on the whole time and said, yes, Lord, you can be in control, but we're never letting go. We're holding on to those things. So what is there in your life right now that you need to say, Lord, I know that you need to be in control of this area and that's an area that I'm holding on to. What is it that you want me to do, Lord? I want you to be Lord of my boss, my CEO in terms of every area in my life. What is it that you have that you need to, to that you know that you need that Christ wants control of in your life? and you're not giving him control. Now, don't worry about the things that you don't even know about yet in scripture. It's like Mark Twain said. He said, it's not the Scripture, uh, the passages of scripture that I uh, don't understand that bother me. It's the ones I do understand. Those are the ones I know that I need to be applying to my life and that I'm not. Even though the enemies refuse to submit, God is in control. He rules from his throne. Are you submitting to his rule in your life? When Jesus was on earth, the disciples said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And so today, as we pray, as we share the word, as we depend on the Holy Spirit, God guides us and gives us victory. And you might think, you know what? Well, the Christian life is easy to live. The Christian life is not easy to live. It's impossible to live. That's why he's given us his Holy Spirit to partner with us as we live the the life that he's called us to live. We can't live it on our own power, but we can live it by the power of God in us. In 1 John 4, 4, John writes and says, greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. That's why we have the power of the Holy Spirit to live the lives that he's called us to live. And so promise number one is that God will defeat his enemies. Promise number two, God will extend his kingdom. But how will that happen? Verse three is the key. The third promise the father makes to his exalted son is that he would give him a victorious army. His army will be willing to go with him in a battle. And their willingness to serve their king will never be in doubt. Verse three, your troops will be willing on your day of battle and what we read about in the book of Revelation, you've got the chapters on the outline, is that this army will assist him in conquering the final, the final enemies of the Lord. And verse three continues, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. They will be willing volunteers. And this is what the king is looking for today. He's looking for willing volunteers to serve him. Are you serving the Lord? Are you doing something to serve him? That's what he wants from you. And again, he takes delight in our service, but we don't earn our salvation by our service. You know, one of the very first um, missionary biographies I read was from a man named Charles Studd, known as C.T. Studd, which is a great name, I guess. And... um, He and his brothers made a name for themselves as outstanding cricket players. Uh, They were just unbelievable. I heard from somebody who was British. They said, you know, and knew the history of the Stud brothers. They said, think of Babe Ruth to baseball. That's what Charles Stud, C.T. Stud was to cricket. Well, Stud graduated from Cambridge and the world was at his feet. Um, After his graduation, his, his father, who was very wealthy, came to faith in Christ when an American evangelist named D.L. Moody came and preached. And uh, eventually, C.T. Studd prayed to receive Christ, the gift of salvation. And he wrote this about his conversion. I got down on my knees and said, thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. And I knew then what it was to be born again, like the Bible talks about. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything to me. Sometime later, one of Charles' brothers uh, got very sick. And Charles was faced with the question as he wrote it out, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity. I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. C.T. Studd and six of his classmates from Cambridge eventually became known as the Cambridge Seven and took off for China as missionaries. Sometime later, um, Stud went to Africa as a missionary with the belief that God would be faithful to provide all of his financial needs. And so when he inherited 29,000 British pounds, which would be the equivalent in today's money of about $4 million, he gave it all away to three different, or a big most of it, to three different organizations, but he gave it all away. Three different Christian organizations. So when Stud went to Africa, he was questioned, why do you want to go in the middle of Africa? Why don't you want to go someplace that's easier? And he wrote this, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And those are the types of volunteers and missionaries that we need today. Are you willing to do whatever God wants you to do? If you're young enough, are you willing to consider missions? Consider going to a people group that have never heard the gospel before? If you're older, maybe it's your grandkids that you know you need to talk to and you haven't talked to them yet. Or your children. Or maybe children, it's a conversation you know you need to have with your parents who don't know the Lord. But are you willing to be a willing volunteer to do whatever God wants you to do? Ask him. Lord, what do you want me to do? We have a a couple that are part of our church family Haven't been here for a while because medically they're not doing great. Um, but they said they were, uh, they were teaching a sixth grade Sunday school class. And one of the kids said to them, you know, we've been praying about what God would have us do. <clears throat> he was a medical doctor. She's a nurse. And they said, we've never done that before. Um, and so let's pray and ask God what he wants us to do. And they were uh, led to go to uh, Jordan as medical missionaries. He did surgeries, she taught nursing. Their mission organization approached him and said, would you be willing to um, go to Gaza? And they said, no, we feel like the Lord has us here in Jordan, but we won't say no. We'll talk to the Lord about it. And so after spending 10 years in Jordan, they went and spent 20 years in Gaza. Uh, I can't think of a a tougher place in many ways to be, but that's where they went. Just asking the Lord. So have you asked the Lord? Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. Jesus says in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then we see in verse 4 that the king is dedicated as a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the central verse of this psalm that says the Messiah will also be a priest, something that didn't happen. This is the the important truth that's explained in the book of Hebrews that describes the high priestly ministry of Christ in heaven. And from a Jewish perspective, if Jesus had been on earth, he could never minister as a priest because he was from the tribe of Judah. And only priests, all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Every priest was, and so what he promises is that Jesus will be a priest to mediate for us, for God's people, as well as a king to rule over us, but because his priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek, that means that Jesus can minister even in heaven today as our priest, because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, and interestingly enough, he was just a human being, but Melchizedek was, but we don't have any record of his birth or his death. And so in that sense, he is a picture of Christ, the eternal son who is a high priest forever. No earthly priest was a priest forever because when they died, they were replaced by their eldest son. That's the way it worked in the tribe of Levi. God's throne is a throne of grace, in which we can come anytime to find the help that we need. What help do you need? Are you going to Jesus for the help? Hebrews 4 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, we, we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one in Jesus who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our representative before God. And unlike an earthly high priest who just goes on and and can only come before God once a year, Christ is always interceding for us. He's always praying for us. He's always available for us every time we pray. But we come to him with the bold assurance that because he is our friend and our counselor and our priest, we can bring any request before him. There was one theologian who gave a, uh, asked a question, and then he gave a series of answers to it. The question he asked is, if God became incarnate, what kind of man would he be? And he answered the question with these points. He said, we would expect him to be sinless. We would expect him to be holy. We would expect his, his words to be the greatest words ever spoken. We would expect him to use a profound power over human personality. We would expect him to perform supernatural miracles. And we would expect him to manifest the love of God. Who does that other than Jesus Of all the human beings who ever lived, only Jesus fulfills that criteria. He is our friend and our counselor and our priest. And then finally in verses five to seven, we see the king priest, that he is a conquering warrior. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. This is a warning that a day of judgment is coming. We sang about it. Everything that's wrong will be made right. That's that day. Today, though, is the day of salvation. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, where he calls sinners to be reconciled to himself. And that is that day of judgment when the Lamb of God will begin to roar as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is the victory that the Father promised back in verse 1. Buddha never said anything like that. Muhammad never said anything like that. Even what we would consider cult leaders who try to convince a small group of people that they are indeed God uh, have never made these kinds of claims. Jesus alone said, I can forgive sins and I am returning to judge the earth. Jesus said before, Abraham was, I am, which means he is beginningless. He is eternal. In verse seven, he will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. It's obviously a metaphor because this is the king riding out of heaven on a horse, and he doesn't need to stop and get a drink of water to keep going. But the psalmist, the warrior David, who's been battle-tested himself, is saying that nothing will hinder or discourage him from attacking the enemies, and God will provide all that he needs, even if it's a sip of water. So what comes to mind, my mind as I read this and and looked at this, is, is Jesus before his crucifixion. He was on the cross, and it says in Matthew 27, the soldiers gave wine to Jesus mixed with bitter gall, to deaden the pain, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. He wanted to experience all of what he was doing when he was bearing our sins on the cross. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I a soldier for Jesus? Am I willing to go? Am I willing to do anything? Will I be a soldier? If I've been a soldier in the past and I've not been recently, will I I now be a soldier? Will I continue to be a soldier for Christ? It was Isaac Watts who wrote this uh, a long time ago. He said, am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace, to help me unto God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word. You know, as we've been looking at how we can pray these psalms, this psalm leads us to praise God for sending Jesus for us. But it's also a psalm that we can pray for ourselves to have a fresh commitment to serve our Lord with courage and with, and, and with, faith, with faith, serve him faithfully. So this is your day to give Jesus control of what you have been holding back from him. Maybe you have yielded yourself to God in the past, but there's some area that you're clutching onto. Maybe you've, you've never said to God, God, it's, just, it's not just that I believe in you, but I want you to be in control. I want to surrender my life to you. I don't want to be in control anymore. I've messed my life up enough. Maybe you want to say to the Lord this morning, I hope you do, Lord, my time, my money, my relationships, my future, my desires, I give it all to you. I want to surrender to you, Lord. I want you to be the leader. I want you to be in control. Jesus is exalted, He is enthroned in heaven. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, our desire uh, is that we would be loyal to you. I pray that the truth would come into our lives and have its way with us until we know the one who is the way and the truth and the life, that is Jesus. Thank you for the example of men like C.T. Studd who leave us uh, such a picture of courage and loyalty. May we be bold in our witness for Jesus today, right where we are, among our friends, among our neighbors, among our family, our classmates, our coworkers. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, overcome our obsession with our own needs and security so that we can truly be a part of the work that you are doing in the world. If there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you personally, we know, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you can draw people to yourself. And we pray that you would do that now. We love you. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This ends our series in the Psalms. Next week we'll be starting an Advent series, so I hope you'll be able to come back next week and celebrate Christmas with us. So from Psalm 112, Praise the Lord, hallelujah, blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments.